All right, so go ahead and turn to Matthew 5, um, 38. I'm going to give you plenty of time to get there. Uh, I don't know why I would give you so much time. But what are your rights? Not a rhetorical question, serious question. What are your rights? As a person, as a human, what are your rights? Right to life? Okay. Free will? Okay. Any other ones? Comments? What are your rights? Like, I think that often, especially in the US, we have this like very high sense of our rights, personal rights. That you say, like, it's I have this right. Every every single week I touch that. We have these rights that we've been given. You look at the Declaration of Independence. I was going to read the whole thing, um, but I'm not going to. Um, but just this beginning part that says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they were endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So like, we say that we have these rights that we're entitled to. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. That we as humans have this right. And it kind of goes back to what I said last week about right and wrong. And people, people say that, don't tell me what's right. Don't tell me what's true because what's true for you might not be true for me. And like, you see this a lot more so, I think, in the Western, the American culture because of this sense of right. Like, you see our country founded on, like, the Declaration of Independence. You see these... 13 colonies that felt like their rights were being infringed upon. And like even more so, you have the, the Bill of Rights, these other amendments that say you have the right to a freedom of speech, you have the right to bear arms, you have the right, there's a bunch of them now. The Bill of Rights, talking about the first 10. And I think that we get the sense of our right, whereas other countries, not every country, but a lot of other countries don't have this same sense of personal rights. I mean, even thinking, as, I was, as I've talked to lots of people in China, just their sense of what's right, what they have right to do, is very different than what we think we have the right to do. Free speech is a big one. There's lots of examples. I was going to give you a bunch of them, but just ran out of time. Um, I think that what's, I'm not saying, please don't hear that the Constitution or the Bill of Rights is a bad thing. Definitely not saying that. I do have freedom of speech to say it, right? Uh, but, like, not saying it's a bad thing at all. Like, not saying it at all. I think that we've been extremely blessed with the opportunities that God has given us through these avenues. But I do think that sometimes we value these rights a little bit too highly, maybe. Like, we have the right to free speech. We have the right to all these different things that we say, this is our right. And as we go today, I just want to kind of maybe redefine rights. Re redefine the, the value that we place on our rights. Not so much the rights, but the value we place on them. Read first Matthew 5, 38 through 42. It says, Jesus is preaching again. He says, You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, 
let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs you from begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So, just like every week, the past probably five, we've said that five or six, we've said that Jesus is correcting the misinterpretation of the Old Testament law. We've said that he's been very clear in doing this. Like you've said this, but I say to you this. Not changing it, but just correcting the misinterpretations. And I hope you've not, like, become immune to that comment as I've said that same thing every week. Because I think it's a danger if we do because of they were mis- misinterpreting things and I don't want us to fall into that same trap with the Old or the New Testament. Like, just trying to be clear on let's not misinterpret things. Or let's realize that was a big error that happened and, like, not falling into that same trap. But this Old Testament law... It kind of came from three specific spots. The law that said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It said a fracture for a fracture, a life for a life. Like It was very clear in saying that. And you can find those in Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. I'll, say, I'll read them again. Exodus 20, 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. And like the same law you actually find in this thing called the, the Code of Hammurabi. Tanner, I don't know if you heard of that or not, Daniel. Code of Hammurabi. It's like before Moses, like this law was around. And that it was kind of known, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Uh, uh, the punishment fits the crime. And something as we point out, I think it's really important to notice that I think from our mindsets, we get this thing where like, that sounds really harsh. But it was actually instituted as a law of mercy. Like, this law said that the punishment has to fit the crime, that you can't be punished for more than you did, that it was designed to limit the scope of punishment. It wasn't designed to, like, enforce punishment. So if you went and you cut off someone's legs, someone could not come back and retaliate and say, okay, I'm going to cut off both your legs. So, like, it was meant as a limiting of the punishment. The punishment had to fit the crime. One person I was reading this week said, it was an equalizer of justice. So like, it, was, it was a goal to be fair, to be just, that there was a set, this is the crime, this is the punishment. So try to make it fair. And another thing that I think is important to note that Jesus is saying is this law, this Old Testament law, specifically this one, was meant to be enforced by the government, by the courts. It was not a personal revenge that if someone cuts off your leg, you go cut off theirs. That's not what this is saying. That that law was written to government, to the courts to enforce. That it was never to be enforced like as a personal revenge kind of thing. And you'll notice that Jesus here is actually preaching to individuals. He's preaching to the people that we've said have come to him wanting to be followers of him. So like he's not preaching to governments. He's not preaching to courts. That's kind of a different scenario. He's preaching to us like the personal revenge. And he's talking directly to that. So, where I kind of want to go with this today, and hopefully you would have got this even if I didn't come out and say it, but I want to go ahead and do that, just kind of to set it out in front of us and say, this is kind of the picture what I, where I want to go. Like, I, th- I hope we see that the value of other people, the personal value that we've talked about a couple other weeks, people and their value given by God, that we see that value higher and infinitely more important 
than any of our self-imposed or self-defined personal rights. Like, that's kind of where I want to go. That's kind of what I'm, like, want to, that's the main point, I guess. And we'll kind of see that going through. So what I'm going to do is just read through all these that I read. You talk, um, all these different co commands, comments, and talk about how they, what they're actually meaning and maybe what that means for us. So, the first one, I'm going to read verse 39. There goes that pick again. Um, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You've heard this before, right? All the time. Turn the other cheek. Especially, like, of, of Christians, you're like, they're supposed to turn the other cheek. And I think it's often said, even by non-Christians, oh, turn the other cheek, don't let them hurt you. Like, even if they punch you, turn the other cheek. But I think it's very clear here that Jesus is not talking about when someone is just pummeling you to make sure they get both cheeks. Like, if someone's really beating you up, it's not saying, well, make sure they get both cheeks. Make sure they get your whole body. Like, that's not what it's saying. And I was thinking of a good example for, the, like, how to, like, teach this more. So I've not warned these two individuals beforehand, but Tanner and Tucker, can you come here for a second? No. Tucker, ask me that same question. Absolutely. Come here. So, a little 30-second background right here. 30-second background. Last week, we went and played basketball at the park. <laughs> and they're in a potential game-winning shot, a potential game-winning layup. The elder of this bunch, not church status, age, the decided to lay a very hard foul on the younger brother. A, a foul that in the NBA would have gotten him ejected real quickly. Flagrant two times two. Like, really bad foul. And in Tucker's defense, he did not retaliate. He did not go the tooth for a tooth, eye for an eye thing. Tucker just handled it very well, I will say that. And still won. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. But, okay, if you're facing each other, step closer. Okay, we've seen that the Bible, we've mentioned in past weeks, this right-hand prominence, that the right hand, like, cut off your right hand. It's kind of talking from a right-handed perspective, almost. So, Tucker, if you're going to slap him with your right hand on his right cheek, how are you going to do that? Backhanded, right? Like, that's the only way this scenario works out, is if he's going to do it backhanded. But if you were going to cause him physical, like, if you wanted to really hurt him, is that how you're going to smack him? No. Except, yeah, no. Like, if you want to hurt him, you're not going to do anything backhanded. Like, forehand punch. Or you're going to use a weapon. Like, if you're really wanting to hurt him, you're not going to backhand him. If you guys want to, like, finish this scenario, you can step out there. I don't care. Um, but, there you go. They finished it. Okay, so... Like, I guess my point in that was saying, like, what Jesus is talking about is not physical violence. He's not saying when someone's coming at you to hurt you, to make sure they get the other cheek. Like, in the Jewish culture, a backhanded smack across the face was one of the most degrading things you could do to someone. That was the biggest insult you could give. I read one place this week that if you did that, out of, if you just walked up to someone and backhand smacked them across the face, you could be fined up to one year's salary. He doesn't have a salary, don't worry. 
Um, but, like, you could be fine that much. It was that big of an uh, insult. So, like, what Jesus is saying here is when someone comes at you and attacks your character, your reputation, your ego, your pride, any of those things, as they attack that, as he's trying to insult you, to turn the other cheek. Hopefully, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we should have no ego for them to attack. We should have no pride for them to try to knock down. Like, as a new creation made in Christ, hopefully, like, that's not something someone can attack. That's not something someone, they can attack it, but it's, that our, that's where our identity is found. And so any personal attack on that should not matter. Like, do you see the difference? It's not talking about a personal attack. I'm not, not talking about self-defense here in a physical attack. But in that scenario, that person's worth, the attacker, their worth is more important than your ego or your right of a man's approval. Like, as you don't retaliate in that scenario, you're able to show that, yeah, I'm different. Most people would probably backhand slap your back, or they would, they would take revenge and go one step further than that. But that's not what Jesus is saying to do. He's saying that by being different, by not taking revenge here, you're able to show yourself as different. You're able to show yourself as a new creation. That's not who you are. You have no need to revenge yourself or to, to have revenge. That was a fun example. But verse 40, I'm just going to go right on the next one. Verse 40 says, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Like, some background. Like, Jesus is saying, he's already said, don't let, don't value your pride, your ego, your reputation. Don't value that higher than you're valuing that other person. Because although they're attacking you, their value is more than any sort of thing they can attack in you. And with this, the scenario with the cloak and tunic, I had to kind of look this up because it doesn't make much sense from our point of view, like the tunic, cloak, what are those? Like the tunic would be more of just what you're wearing now, just your average clothes would be like kind of a comparison to a tunic or your undergarments, like things like that. Whereas your cloak was your coat, was your source of warmth, was what you relied upon to, to keep you warm in the cold nights. And in this culture, you could sue someone for their tunic, but you could not sue someone for their cloak. You did not have that right. You could take their cloak as collateral during the day, but even then you had to give it back at night because that was their source of warmth. You could not sue someone for that. So what Jesus is saying is, if someone comes to sue you for your tunic, just go ahead and offer him your cloak. And this go, it's like next part, I didn't find any other support of this but as I was reading this, I was thinking, if they're suing you, if they have the right to sue you, it means you did something wrong. You wronged them in some way if they're suing you. And as Christians, there's nothing that we should hold on to that is more valuable than making it right. Even if we talked about reconciliation, of it's the job of the offender to make it right. And so if we did something wrong, it's our job to go and make that right. So... No, we, no matter the value we place on our cloak or what it's like in life, nothing that we value should be of more value than making it right with them. That person, whether we think that we were absolutely wrong in doing it, maybe we think we were justified in doing whatever we did, that we should value them, value making it right with them, so much so that we're not holding on to our cloak. We're not holding on to things that we value. 
That can look very different in our culture. Clothes, cars, house, anything. Like, the, our physical possessions cannot be more of, of more value than another person. Verse 14. And if anyone would force you to go one mile, go with him two miles. I like this one. Like, Jesus said, don't value your pride, your ego, your reputation. That's not of more value than a person. He's saying your stuff, that cannot be of more value than the person. And now he's saying, like, your time, your precious time that you think you have, that is all yours, cannot be of more value than this person. Because this comment, this teaching would have really hit home to the Jewish listeners, to the Jewish people that are listening to Jesus preach this, because they were under Roman control at this point, and Roman laws would be able to be enforced upon them. And there was a Roman law that said that if a, a Roman soldier could come and enlist someone into service, a Roman soldier could come as you're on your way to work one day and say, hey, you got to carry my stuff for a Roma, one Roman mile, which I did some research, like that's apparently a little bit less than a mile, but in the ballpark, that you, he, he could say, hey, carry this stuff, and by law, you had to. You had no way around it. You had to carry his stuff for one mile. And what happened with these Jews, what I read this week, they said that the Jews would carry for one mile. They'd count out their steps. And as soon as they hit that one mile, they'd drop it, make it clear they were done, and they would go. Because they fulfilled their obligation. And Jesus is saying, wait, don't do that. He says, if they ask you to go one mile, go with him too. And I think that's huge here. I was kind of thinking, like, RCG, for example, has talked a lot about ways we can be intentionally, ways we can be intentional in the way that we go out and evangelize. Ways, like, we try to really talk about, okay, what does it look like for us in our lives to be intentional in building relationships to share the gospel? How can we do that? What, what can we prioritize? What can we change? What can we do? Because this needs to be a value. And I was thinking about it in terms of this, and, like, okay, this Roman soldier who pretty much bet on that he's not a Christian, he doesn't know Jesus, and he's just told you, hey, you got to walk one mile with me. Like, he's forcing you to walk a mile with him carrying his stuff. He's asking for you to talk to him. Maybe not, but you've got the opportunity to talk to him. And Jesus is saying, in that scenario, that soldier's worth has to be of more value than the, whatever you're going to do. If you're going to work, whatever you were planning on doing when he enlisted you is of much less worth than the opportunity that's now in front of you. But now you should say, okay, I've got one mile with you. How about two? I'll carry it an extra two miles because I value this time I'm spending with you. Sounds kind of crazy. But like that soldier or whoever it is in, in our context is of more value than our time, whatever we are going to do. I mean, maybe after a half mile, he realizes what he's gotten himself into and says, okay, leave. Like, I can carry it myself. I don't know. Like, that's not our job at that point. But, like, we've been given this opportunity to value another person. Verse 42 says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
So here he's saying that absolutely nothing, we've already talked about your reputation, your pride, your, your ego, whatever that is that was being attacked, your stuff, your time. Like he's saying, like, absolutely nothing. There's nothing that should be of more value than another person that comes in asking, that comes in requesting, asking to borrow. There's nothing that we should value more than we're valuing that person. I'm not saying not to use discernment, not to be discerning in, in situations like that, because I think Proverbs would warn against doing it like that, to not be discerning. But I think that often we can fall into this trap of like being judges or, or, or people at the bank that give out loans that are like, hmm, I'm going to judge whether or not you need this or not. That's my spot to be in. I'm going to judge whether you need this. And Jesus is saying, like, no, give to the one who asks. If someone comes in and says, I'm hungry, and they're wearing nice clothes and a, driving a nice car, and they say, come in and say, I'm hungry, we're not to say, you don't look like you're hungry. I'm not going to give it to you. Like, that's not our job. He's saying if someone asks for food, give them food. It doesn't say if it's talking about food, money, shelter, clothing. It doesn't talk about what he's talking about. But it's also not our job to, to be the judge, to be that loan officer is saying, trying to gauge whether or not they need it. I think there's some discernment that can be involved here, absolutely. I'm not saying not to discern what we give. But I think there's a fine line between that and judging in our hearts whether they need it or not. I think that's where, it, that's where the difference happens. I looked at the parallel verse in Luke 6. So in Luke 6, there's also like the Sermon on the Mount. And the parallel verse there, when it's talking about someone asking to borrow from you, the way it's written is actually implied that they're going to borrow from you and not give it back, that they're unable to repay you. And I think that, in our word, if someone's borrowing from you, we assume if they borrow, they're going to give it back. As much as I would love that my student loan person that I borrowed from would not worry about me paying it back, let's assume that I'm going to pay it back. Like, I am obligated. My credit score changes if I don't pay it back unfortunately. But he's saying, like, loan to someone even if we think they can't pay it back. Like, that's not ours to judge. As I was thinking, like, this, also, this seems a lot like salvation. Like, it seems like Jesus, as he freely gave, he knew we could never repay the gift that he was giving. Like, there is nothing that we can do to repay that. And he knew that, and yet he still gave. I think that compares very nicely there. I'm going to read the next section, and, and almost as a summary of these previous sections, this, this previous section I just read. And you kind of see the way that he kind of almost directly about this past one, about retaliation. I'm going to read Matthew 5, 43 through 47, in this next section here. He says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Like, Jesus is saying to love and to pray for these people who are persecuting you, these people that are your enemies. And, like, looking back at the previous section, like, 
He's saying to love and to pray for those people that maybe they're attacking your ego. Maybe they're attacking your pride, reputation. Maybe they're suing you for something, whether they're rightfully doing that or, or not. Maybe they are um, forcing you to do something that you don't want to do. Maybe they're taking up your time. He's saying to love them. Maybe they're asking from you and you know they can't repay. But that's what he's saying, to love them. To perse- to, as they persecute you, we're to love them and pray for them. And I think it's interesting to note that Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's not saying, in this one, he doesn't say, it was written to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, you have heard it was said. Like, the Bible actually doesn't say, hate your enemy. Like, that's never commanded of the individuals in the Old Testament. Like, that's not what's commanded, to hate your enemy. Like, that's something that they were, that they had, the Pharisees or the teachers of this law had added. And I think that's, like, important to know. You go back... And it was always said, you have heard that it was said. Not it was written, but you heard that it was said. And this love that he's talking about, this valuing of that person, you value them as God values them, and you love as God loves them, is more than just uh, um, putting up with them. It's more than this. Like, it's not just tolerating them. He says in verse 47, if you only greet them, what, how are you different than anyone else? Like, even the, other, even the Gentiles greet their enemies. And I think this was kind of hit home for me. Just like, I have no problem. Even if there's, I have a small, a small grudge against someone, and in a social situation, I still greet them. I mean, hi, you greet everyone in the room. You still say hi. You might even shake their hand. But that's not what he's talking about here. Like, what he's talking about, this love, is seeing the God-given value within a person, regardless of their physical action or their words to you. Like, that's not... How, what we're basing our love off of. Like, we're seeing the value that they're, that they're made in the image of God, these people, and that's how, we are, how, we're, how we're viewing them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made a comment about praying for the, your enemies that I thought was really good. He says, This is the supreme demand, that through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Like, that's a lot more than just toleration. That's more than just putting up with your enemy. That's seriously saying, I'm praying for my enemy. I'm loving my enemy to the whatever degree, like to the highest degree. And I think that's important here. That also in this passage, in this last section, he points out that God, in his perfect character, in his perfect justice, sends the sun, sends the rain on the good and on the evil. That he doesn't hold back the rain, hold back the sun from people that are evil. And I think he's also saying, Jesus is saying, for us, like, our actions, our love towards other people is not based on their physical actions, whatever they do to us. That God is not saying, base that off of who they are, but of what God has made them. So that cannot be how we base our are valuing of them. Paul talks about this. Go ahead and flip to Romans um, 12. I'm going to give you a second to do this, and I'm also going to get a drink. Romans chapter 12. 
I'm going to start in verse 16 in just a second. All right, Romans 12, verse 16. I'm going to read through 21. He says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, yourselves, leave it to the wrath. Oh, I just got it all messed up. Verse 18. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Like, our job is not the vengeance part. Like, no matter what they're doing to us, Jesus is saying, love them, pray for them. The vengeance part, God is saying, that's mine. I'm going to take care of that. So, like, that's, we want to make sure that's not our job. That, I think that when we read this, what you, who your enemies are, I think often we kind of dial it back. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, that classmate growing up that made my life awful. Or that person in my life, at my job, that's just extremely difficult and is mean to me. They insult me. They're mean. But I think this extends a lot farther than that. I think within this, like, thinking of who are generally your enemies? Who are people that you're so prone to despise? And I think, like, in my head, kind of going through, thinking, what about the, the radical Muslim groups we see in the Middle East? The ISIS group. What about them? What about... Um, in World War II scenario, what about the Nazis, the people that are, like, evil people we see? What about leaders we, we hear about in North Korea that are um, persecuting Christians, are persecuting their own people? Like, I think that this command to love and to pray for your enemies extends this far. And I think we don't often in our heads go that far with it. And I think you start to see how ridiculously impossible this seems. Like, how can I pray for someone? How can I love someone who is doing these awful things, this, these gen this genocide, this murder, this persecution? And I think we kind of the point where we're getting at here is without God doing something drastic in our own hearts, that it is impossible. Like, this is something that's not natural to do, to love someone who is so evil to you, or even that you just see as being evil. I hope that we'll see our need for just a changed heart, a changed perspective on basically everything. I haven't used many movie references, and I've really tried, and I got one, and I think it works out perfectly. This is awesome. So, have you seen the Bourne movies, the Bourne trilogy? Most of you, maybe, kind of, sort of. Like, in this movie, really good movies, you have Jason Bourne, played Matt, Matt Damon, you have him... Waking up, has no idea who he is. No idea what's going on in his life. He knows he's been shot and that they found a bank account number in his hip. Like, that's basically what they, um, that's all he knows. I tried to watch this movie last night again, like, just a refresher, and I fell asleep. But, like, it's a really good, it really is, it really is. Um, I highly suggest it. But 
He wakes up and doesn't know anything. He's trying to figure out, asking himself questions, digging through the very little bit of stuff that he has, trying to figure out who he is. He doesn't know. And there's a scene with him in a restaurant where he's like, he's talking to this girl that he's met, but through a crazy scenario at the embassy, and he's like, I don't know who I am. But what I know, like, I can tell you every license plate number on the car in the parking lot. I can tell you that the most likely place to find a gun is in the silver truck outside. Like, I know that our waitress is left-handed. I know that that guy sitting at the bar is 215 pounds and knows how to move. I know at this altitude, I can run this far at this speed without getting winded. And all of a sudden, he's like, I don't know why I know, know all these things. He doesn't know why, and he finds out later, and not to spoil the movie, they've been out for a long time, so sorry. But he finds out later that he's been trained as this assassin, that his life has been shaped, his perspective has been shaped as he's been trained into this assassin, that he's taught in the room to fight what in the room can be of help to him, what is, what is dangerous to him. His viewpoint on absolutely everything around him has been changed. His perspective on his surroundings and on the other people has been shaped by this. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, wow, like, is it not our perspective, our heart, our, our viewing on other people, is it not that that needs to drastically change? Like, if we're going to see people, if we're going to value people the way that God values people, our perspective has to be completely changed. And that's not something that we do. That's not something you're like, I'm going to love my enemies today. That's something that God does in you. That's something that as you're in his word, as you're in communion with God, as you're seeking his will, that's something that he does. He changes that within you. And I think that if we're trying just to look at our enemies, I'm going to love you. I'm going to, as soon as we see something they do that's against us, all of a sudden it's difficult to love them again. And he's not saying that it's going to be easy to love your enemies. I don't think he's saying that. But it's a command to love your enemies. And I think it goes as far, like, God is going to change our hearts. Like, we need to, like, beg God, change my heart, change my perspective on the people around me. Give me a love for people that I don't have. And I think that's what God wants to do. Like, I kind of, I purposely did not read verse 48. Sorry if that bothered anybody. But, like, verse 48 back in Matthew 5 says, you, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Like, you see how ridiculous that sounds. Like, wait, you're telling me my command is to be perfect as God is perfect. Right. Like, no problem. Like, but I think this is applying to this whole, we've talked about in Matthew 5, of all these commands. Jesus is saying, you have heard it said this, I'm saying this. Like, this is what it means to be a follower of me. Hopefully we realize, like, all those seem pretty impossible to do without God changing our hearts. And I've kind of mentioned that every week of our desperate need for that heart change, for that, for that God-given perspective on his creation, for his people. We're just as utterly hopeless to do this on ourselves just as we were utterly hopeless to save ourselves from our sins. Like, that's not something that we could do for ourselves. That took a sacrifice. That took Jesus dying for us. That's the only way we have any hope for our salvation. And our hope for our change, of us changing our own hearts, we don't have that. Like, we need God to do something crazy, to do a miracle in our own hearts. That just someone do a miracle in, in me. I think I got the words wrong there. But 
Like, he talks about doing a miracle. Like, we need that miracle to happen in our viewpoint, in our perspective, on our hearts. Like, maybe this is a foreign concept. I don't know. Like, maybe it's like, I don't get what you're talking about. What do you mean I need a heart change? And I think if that's a foreign concept, that you need a heart change to people out there, I think that's a sign that you need a heart change. Like, that if you're, if it, if you're questioning, like, well, I think I love people just fine. Like, show me how you want to change, how you want him to change your heart. Like, we all desperately need God to do that. And that just as, I said, just said this, but just as we desperately needed God to forgive us of our sins, we desperately need God to change our hearts as we look to love other people, as we value other people ahead of our, any of our own rights that we think we have. Like, any sort of personal rights, whether they're in the, in the Declaration of Independence or whether they're in the Bill of Rights, like, hopefully, as followers of Jesus, we value those so secondary compared to the value of people and the way that we're able to engage with people, as we're able to love the people around us, inside the church, outside the church, wherever they are. I just, I really think that that's what Jesus is saying here. Like, value people as God values people. And I hope we just continue to see our lack of ability to do this ourselves. Like, I just pray that we'll just beg God to change us, to, to mold us to more and more into the image of his son. Let's pray. God, I just do just ask you, Father, to change each one of our hearts. Like, all too often I see in my own heart that, <laughs> that I just don't have much love for other people sometimes. And I just pray, Father, that you would just create that in me, that you'd create the new heart, that as we said, like, that you would give us this heart that is desperate for you, that so desperately needs you. I just ask, Father, to, to do a miracle, to change our hearts, to, to cause your word to change us, that as we're in your word, as we're so in tune with you through prayer, as we're spending time with you, as we're learning to, to love that, I ask, Father, that you would change our perspective, that you would change the way we view people, that you would change the way we interact with people, and that our love for you would grow so much that we would love people exactly as you love people, that we would value people as you value people, as you made them in your image, that it would never matter what they've done to us, but that we're able to love them and not, not seek revenge. Father God, just, just move here. This, this causes us to respond in whatever way that looks like. Whether that be in repentance on our knees, or that be praising you for, for not holding our sins against us. I don't know what that means for each one of us. But God, lead us to respond. Lead us to, to lay it all down, to not value the things that we have, the, that we'd have no ego to be attacked, that we'd have no rights that we hold on to so valuably that, that we put them below other people. God, teach us to love you. Teach us to value you above all other things. In Jesus' name, amen.